You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about vaccine hesitancy. We know that vaccine hesitancy has been a prominent issue of public health for several years, but it's only increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. Definitions of what hesitancy means vary, but the World Health Organization, or WHO, defines vaccine hesitancy as, quote, a delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccines despite availability of vaccination services. Historically, about 19% of families are hesitant about vaccines, and these families are vulnerable to misinformation or disinformation when making decisions about whether or not to vaccinate. Rates of hesitancy are higher in Black families compared to white families, and it's important to consider some of the reasons for this hesitancy and how to address it today. Joining me to talk through this and discuss a framework for these discussions with families is a Children's Hospital of Philadelphia pediatric resident, Dr. Latasha Easter. Welcome, Dr. Easter. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for being here. So let's start by just reviewing some of the data. So based on our pediatric vaccination rates for COVID and parent surveys, how many children have been vaccinated and where are we seeing disparities in vaccination rates? This is a great question. Luckily, keeping abreast of childhood immunization rates has been a hot topic for several years, and we have some concrete, relatively up-to-date data that can really help define the scope of the issue. For the typical childhood shots, so these are the ones that we recommend for all children starting at the age of two months and are typically required for school and daycare, about 68% of children are fully vaccinated by the age of two. This leaves about 32% of children not being vaccinated by this age. If we further stratify this data by race, about 66% of African-American children are vaccinated as compared to 72% of white children. So that's about an 8% difference. This gap further widens when you look at vaccines that aren't a part of the standard vaccinations, such as the flu vaccines. We see that only 49% of African-American children were vaccinated against the flu compared to 61% of white children. So clearly there are disparities in childhood vaccination status based on race. If we dig even further and take into account the COVID vaccine, which is now available for our younger children, about 29% of our five to 11 year olds are vaccinated versus 60% of the older kids or 12 to 17 year olds. We do know from adult data that there was a significant disparity, especially in the earlier days of the vaccine among black and Hispanic adults versus white adults. Luckily, that gap has begun to close the longer the vaccine has been available. But I imagine the data is the same given how new the COVID vaccine is for children. Now, let's dissect some of those numbers a little bit more because we know that not all those who are unvaccinated are hesitant. And it's the hesitant group who may be looking to us as pediatricians for more information. So in the families who have not yet vaccinated their children, how many are hesitant versus how many are definitely not getting the vaccine? The data shows that there is actually quite a mismatch between families that express hesitancy around vaccines and families that completely refuse vaccinations for their child. 
A study done in 2020 showed that while 25% of hesitants were either somewhat hesitant or very hesitant about childhood vaccines, only 6% had complete refusals of vaccines or opted to delay or modify the vaccination schedule. So as you can see, there's definitely a subset of families that are on the fence or have some reservations about vaccinating their child, even though they ultimately do choose to vaccinate. Those are the families that are going to have the most questions or concerns when new vaccines, such as the COVID vaccine, are introduced. And those will also be the families that are going to be more susceptible to misinformation or disinformation online or in the community regarding vaccines. In general, the reasons to not getting vaccinated include things like vaccine safety concerns, distrust of the government, fear of being used as experimentation, and mistrust of the vaccine and medical providers. While some of these themes are common to many hesitant families, some are unique to African-American families. So can you explain some of the historical context that might explain vaccine hesitancy in African-American patients? Of course. A key factor to addressing hesitancy about anything is determining why does it exist in the first place. And we've done studies, there have been focus groups, and really if you just listen to anecdotal stories from our patients and even from my own friends and families, they've all highlighted a common source of hesitancy among the Black population. And that's just mistrust. And it's not mistrust of the vaccine itself or if the vaccine is actually going to work, but it's distrust of the institution of medicine and the providers that are recommending the vaccine. And as some of our younger patients say, they come with receipts. (laughs) Or in other words, there is actual data, both historically and currently, to validate their concerns that the medical system does not always treat Black patients fairly or the same as their white counterparts, and therefore warrants mistrust. I think one of the more well-known examples is the Tuskegee Airmen Study. The official title was Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. 600 Black men were quote-unquote recruited, 400 of which had known syphilis, and when treatment became available, the treatment was withheld from them in order to provide physicians at the time with medical knowledge of the natural history of the disease. Though it started in 1932, it was not deemed unethical or forced to stop until 1972. That was only 50 years ago. This is the age of some of the parents or grandparents of the patients that we are treating today. And this is an example of the stories that those grandparents tell their children and their children then tell their children. And the story propagates across generations, which further propagates mistrust in our medical system. And while the Tuskegee study is a more well-known study, and it's often cited as the root of all mistrust in African-Americans or the Black population, It is important to realize that it was not a single historical event. It has merely become the study that symbolizes racism in medicine and misconduct in human research that was happening years prior. Even prior to the Tuskegee study, there are multiple accounts of physicians using both enslaved and free Black citizens as unwilling research subjects for medical experiments. So for example, there is a prominent gynecologist in the 1800s who used Black women as subjects to practice on and perfect one of their procedures, repairing a vaginovesicular fistula. These women were practiced on without anesthesia, and their pain and suffering was clearly documented in the same medical journals that we read today. And this was just one of many stories of Black bodies being used to test remedies for heat stroke or being robbed from their graves to be used as subjects for experiments for the advancement of medicine. 
So when you put all of this into context, the Tuskegee study was really just the peak of years of mistreatment of Black individuals prior. And as a consequence, many Black people prescribed to the notion that every medical study involving Black participants or any illness disproportionately affecting Black people is really just a government plot to oppress the lives of Black people. Since then, we have had regulations put in place, such as the National Research Act of 1974. We have an IRB and we have other regulations to protect human subjects and research, but it's still a constant uphill battle. And now we are in 2022, but we're still seeing racial disparities in housing, in jobs, in medicine, and the overall infrastructure of our country. And that continues to reinforce the idea that Black lives are not valued the same as our white counterparts. When you are blinded by staggering statistics, like Black women are three times more likely to experience infant mortality, or that previously healthy Black children are 3.4 times more likely to die within 30 days after surgery than white children, it's natural to be skeptical. Therefore, our patients are constantly on alert and are constantly perceiving, despite our best efforts as physicians, that they are going to be treated differently in our medical system simply because of the color of their skin. I say all of this to emphasize that while to us as providers, it can be very frustrating when patients are refusing a vaccine that we know is safe and effective and is the best thing for their child. But in those moments, we have to step back and consider the lens of skepticism and mistrust that our patients are looking through that extends far beyond our office. Oh, thank you so much for that, Dr. Easter. That was beautifully said. And I think I just want to take a second to let all of that really resonate with everyone too. And I hope everyone goes back and listens to that piece again. Ooh, so it's such an important topic and point that you're highlighting in this historical context. But I know that some providers may be hesitant to address these concerns that we just heard about with their patients. And do we have any evidence from either anecdotal reports or the literature that this is something that our African-American patients and families may want their pediatric provider to discuss with them and acknowledge that this hesitancy is rooted in historical context? Yes, there have actually been multiple studies, especially in the era of the COVID vaccine and the disparities that we were seeing there. And a lot of these studies encompass focus groups. And common themes is that families just want someone to acknowledge that there is a level of mistrust that they are feeling about the healthcare system. They want us to validate that historical medical abuse is real, and therefore we understand why they are weary about getting vaccinations for them or their child. And oftentimes, we want to correct what we deem as misinformation or counteract a concern with an immediate rebuttal. However, what we've learned is that responding with empathy and not arguments is going to be the best way to create a safe space to have an open and honest conversation about vaccines with our families. The medical abuse and mistrust that we discussed in the previous question are not always taught in schools, grade school, or even medical school for that matter. These are stories and personal narratives that have likely been passed down through familial generations. And our patients may assume that we actually have no idea or don't understand why they have this deep-seated, unexplainable feeling of mistrust. And though a provider may not look like a patient, having some understanding of the patient or family's personal narrative and just acknowledging that that exists can really make the patient feel seen and foster a trusting and safe environment. In one focus group, 
a participant said, and I quote, it almost seems like the blame is placed on the marginalized community for not believing in medicine, when actuality, it's been the medical industry that has mistreated them, end quote. And this quote really resonated with me and underscored that our patients just want to know that we see them and we care about them and we do not blame them for their mistrust. And that can be done by simply acknowledging that abuse has occurred, disparities exist, but we will work together to help them make informed decisions about their child's medical care. Great points about leading with empathy and making informed decisions together. So let's practice this. Help us identify a framework for approaching vaccine conversations with hesitant Black families. So let's say I start off with a presumptive approach, which in general is a good approach for vaccines, saying something like, you're eligible for your COVID vaccine today. And a family says, we're not doing that. What comes next in the conversation? I feel like I am in the office in my primary care clinic. (laughs) And that immediate dismissal often feels daunting and leads at least me wondering, is this conversation even worth probing further? And I promise you that it is. Mm -hmm. And there's a framework that I came across called the CASE method, C-A-S-E, that has been used in previous studies and seems to work well when addressing vaccine-hesitant families. But before we really dive into that, if the initial response from a parent is a true dismissive no without further elaboration, we have to get a sense of why the family is hesitant in the first place. I generally start with a very open-ended question. Tell me your thoughts about the vaccine. Sometimes this can open a can of worms, but in the very least, I feel like it gives me a sense of what direction the conversation could go. So for this example, let's say the family responds, I don't know, it's just so new and I don't trust it. None of us in the family have gotten it and I don't want it for my child. Now we have a framework for the factor driving the hesitancy. There's an overall mistrust of a new vaccine. And now we can use the case method to do a little counseling. So first is the C, which stands for cooperate. And this is essentially that empathy piece that I mentioned earlier. And in my opinion, it's probably the most important step to get a family to buy into the conversation. Take a brief second, validate their concern, voice it back to them. And if you can agree or understand or have a personal relationship with that concern, say that too. So for example, I can say, yes, I totally get that one second we're entering a pandemic and the next there's a whole vaccine available. I can see how that fast development can seem a little sketchy. Mm -hmm. And with that groundwork laid, you usually start to get some head nods and some social cues that the family has brought into the conversation just because they felt like they've had some common ground with you. So the next step is A, and that's about me. And this is our point where we as providers can then set the framework for where our information is coming from. Why should the patient trust us as the experts for this conversation around vaccines? So we could say, before getting my vaccine, I used all of the strategies they taught me in medical school to read the information behind how it was made so quickly. And then I familiarized myself with the clinical trials that answer the important questions like, does it even work? What side effects should we expect? And most importantly, what types of people were involved in these trials? And that really lets the family know the information that I'm presenting to you is from a point of expertise from my credentials. And once that stage is set, we can then start to present some of the science. And that's the S part of the case method. This is where we can take a brief moment to explain why the science backs our claims that this vaccine works and it's safe and it is needed. 
So for example, we can continue the conversation with, what I learned is that though it seems the vaccine developed quickly, the science behind it is actually quite old and we know how to use it now. And we were still able to complete the clinical trials which showed the benefits outweighed the risk. And this is actually a quite safe and effective vaccine, even for children. And after the science, it's helpful to close with a clear recommendation or explanation. And that's the E portion of our case. I close the conversation. I want what is best for you and your child, and I want to keep you all healthy and out of the hospital. I have seen the effects of COVID on both adults and younger children. And in order for us to best protect your child together, I recommend that they get the COVID vaccine today. So in summarize, use the case method, corroborate about me, use some science and end with an explanation or a solid piece of advice. And this will allow you to remember to set the stage, provide some empathy and get buy-in from the parent. That way you can present the data and together you guys can make an informed decision about vaccinating your child. I love it. I love the case framework. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm always telling people to use their anecdotes and their personal stories and any hesitancy that you might have had as a healthcare provider, you know, going first with vaccinations in December of 2020, January of 2021. Share how you made your decision. It's a really powerful moment for you to connect with a family on a personal level. And as you said, putting the safety and the care that we have for the patient, their child first, because that's something that we and the family are coming together on is really protecting the child. So I would love, as I mentioned, you're a pediatric resident at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So I would love for you to give us an example of a patient experience where a family demonstrated some hesitancy and you had a conversation with them that might have resulted in vaccination. And what do you think helped them feel confident in this choice? So I can actually share the patient encounter that I had that sparked my interest in this topic and demonstrated how important counseling is. Great. So I was in my primary care clinic and I was in a nine-year-old well-child visit. And towards the end, I brought up the HPV vaccine for the patient. And like you mentioned before, the presumptive approach is usually best. So I brought it up. Your child is due for one vaccine today. It's called the HPV vaccine. Have you heard of that before? And the mother immediately shook her head. No, we will not be doing the vaccine today. She got all the ones she needed for school and I'm not doing anything extra. To explore further, I asked her thoughts about it. And she explicitly stated, no offense, but I don't trust the medical system. They have done too much to us and my child is not gonna be the next Tuskegee Airman. Then she looks at me and she says, I'm sure you understand. But she was right. I kind of did understand. Just like I'm sure she grew up hearing these stories in her household, I did too. So in that moment, I leveraged that common ground. I acknowledge, yes, I do understand. I am a doctor, but I'm also fully aware that our country and medical system has not always been on our side, which makes it very difficult to trust and discern what is best for us and what is meant to harm us. And then I shared, because I am so aware of this, I question a lot of things. I look up information for myself from resources that I trust so that I know that I am doing what's best for me and recommending what's best for my patients. And I promise you that if I didn't believe the vaccine worked or if I didn't know the effects of HPV can have on your child long-term, I would not be recommending this vaccine for her. And at that time, I could see I was starting to make some headway. And I was getting a little bit excited because then the inquisitive mm -hmm. questions came. 
It was more of a back and forth conversation. So what exactly is HPV? Hmm, what happens if I decide to not get her vaccinated today? And I felt like we can have that open dialogue. However, at the end, she still was uncertain. She says, I'm not sure. I'll have to talk to my husband about it. And at that point, I felt a little bit defeated because I was like, I don't think this is going to be a win for me today. But I offered her information from a trusted source to take home with her and read and share with her husband. And I reinforced, I know this is a tough decision, but I am so glad you are getting the information for yourself to do what is best for your child. And then they left. However, the best part of the story is I saw her again a year later. And when I looked at her chart, she had gotten the HPV vaccine a couple of months after our visit. And though it was delayed, that was still a win in my book. I casually brought it up to mom during the second visit. And she told me, yeah, I thought a lot about the conversation we had. I read over some of the information you gave us. I figured if it was recommended as strongly as you did, it was worth looking into. And I interpreted that answer as trust by validating her concerns, but making a strong, clear recommendation while also arming her with an information and space to make her own decisions, I really think it strengthened our patient and family relationship. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And I think an important point here that I've emphasized with residents in the past too is that when a patient refuses a vaccine in clinic, but you have a conversation like that, it's not a failure for you when you leave that encounter, that you often are starting the conversation, which happens over time and trust is earned. And so I think it's really important that you highlighted a case where the patient didn't get vaccinated right away, but it was really a process of the parent making that decision on their own over time, but was sparked by your initial conversation. Now, we've been talking a lot about one-on-one conversations that happen in clinic, but vaccine education happens at a public health level too. And the CDC has emphasized the importance of, quote, trusted messengers delivering vaccine information to hesitant communities. So can you give us some examples of how this has been done successfully? Yes. Um, As you mentioned, a key factor to addressing hesitancy, especially if we're thinking it's stem from mistrust, is to have the information presented from a trustworthy source, someone that the patient truly feels has their best interest in mind. And we've actually done a great job leveraging this in the era of the COVID vaccine. One of the resources that I have used a lot in my primary care clinic is the Black Doctors Consortium. This is a group of Black physicians in Philadelphia that have taken charge of providing education and advocacy for Black residents of Philly around the COVID vaccine. This group of doctors also includes doctors involved in their local church communities or in community centers, and they became mobile. They went out into the communities that were hit hardest by COVID to provide testing, information, and then vaccinations. Along a similar vein, there's also a group called Philly Counts, which is an organization that's partnered with the Philadelphia Department of Public Health to also participate in community engagement around the COVID vaccine. What I found really unique about this group is they have what they call vaccine information champions. These are local volunteers of all ages from the community who were actually trained to learn about and answer questions regarding the COVID vaccine. This training is offered in multiple languages and is often offered to different community groups, such as the African and Caribbean coalition, who could then get all of their members trained and therefore go out into their communities and share that information. It's human nature for all of us to inherently have more faith in information if it's coming from someone that we trust. Having your next door neighbor 
your hairdresser, the lady that sticks in your pew at church, talk to you about the vaccine really helps to normalize it. And it allows us to let our guard down and truly receive the information so that we can make educated decisions for ourselves. So I recently heard of a Spanish-speaking community with high rates of hesitancy looking for a medical provider to answer their questions. And as I can't speak Spanish, I'm not necessarily the best trusted messenger, but I was able to connect them with one of my colleagues who is a native Spanish speaker. But if you're a pediatric provider having trouble finding a trusted messenger, we now live in this virtually connected world. So what are some strategies that pediatricians could use to engage Black, Latinx, or non-English speaking communities with credible vaccine information when perhaps there isn't someone within their community? So the AAP has actually launched a campaign called The Conversation, which is a pretty expansive video library of doctors, nurses, community leaders, and researchers providing easy-to-understand information about vaccines, including how they are made, dispelling common myths, and promoting credible facts. These videos are also available in a variety of languages to reach a more diverse audience. And in addition, the AAP has an immunizations campaign toolkit for providers that has additional videos and infographics explaining common questions and concerns regarding the effectiveness and safety of vaccines. I love those AAP resources, so thanks for bringing those up. While we're talking about things online, I know that social media can be used to spread public health messages like the benefits of vaccination, but there's also a lot of disinformation out there. So how should pediatricians approach countering disinformation online? The AAP has also put out some great guidelines for providers around this topic as well. We all see some very interesting comments or myths online, and we just have to be very careful with engaging in information or conversations that can be potentially harmful. One thing to keep in mind, even a comment or a repost to a comment correcting misinformation can sometimes further circulate and propagate a post or creating more traffic, if you will, to circulate disinformation. However, there are safe ways to help our patients navigate social media counter disinformation online, and even participate in sharing trusted content via social media. We want to once again start off with a leading empathetic statement when we're confronted with disinformation from social media. One of understanding, not argumentative. And then we can chat with our patient about why the information they obtain just wasn't true, whether that's pointing out the trustworthiness or credibility of the authors of the source, or highlighting how the information may be misleading or explaining how the information can easily be misinterpreted. But I think the most important step, and in order to address the underlying issue, we must then be able to direct our patients to trustworthy sources, including sources that they deem trustworthy. So for us, as providers, we may love the CDC and the Department of Public Health, but maybe our patients aren't so keen at looking at those websites. And this is where our trusted messengers come into play again using members of the community or faith leaders as channels to promote accurate information that our patients can trust. It's a great point that you don't want to amplify messages that contain disinformation and then thinking about which sources you use when you're posting and how meaningful and trusted they might be by your target audience. So thank you for those tips. As we know, social media is such a common tool for public health messages. Now, this is such an important topic, and you made so many fabulous points that I want to make sure listeners take away your key messages here. So what quick kind of two to three things do you want pediatricians to remember about vaccine hesitancy? 
first and foremost, I would love for every pediatrician to come away with awareness. We have all heard very interesting theories and reasons for why our patients are not getting vaccinated. From the vaccine causing a direct health complication to the vaccine having a microchip or some other form of government tied to it. And the thing I want to underscore is no matter how far-fetched the reasoning may seem to us, it is based in part by real historical and current facts and events that have negatively affected Black people in this country. Therefore, it's essential for us as healthcare providers to truly listen to our patients' concerns and provide empathy so that our patients feel heard and feel comfortable continuing these conversations. And secondly, though we all want every child to get vaccinated as soon as possible, this can be a marathon, not a sprint. Sometimes these conversations need to happen over several weeks and we need to utilize our resources to help us out, even if that means delaying our immediate gratification of getting a hesitant family vaccinated in the office. Become familiar with websites and organizations in your area that families can go to and reference, like the Black Doctors Consortium or Philly Counts, to help supplement any conversation that you have in the office. Trust can't be built in one day, as you mentioned earlier, but information, especially information from a trusted source, can arm patients with the knowledge to make truly informed decisions about their child's health. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Easter, to talk about vaccine hesitancy. I've learned a lot from you, and I feel great knowing that you are taking care of children in West Philadelphia as part of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the Cobbs Creek Primary Care Site. So thank you so much for what you do and for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.